The rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about hope this morning. When it comes to hope, I find it rather remarkable how cynical and how antagonistic people outside of Christianity have been over the years. Just listen to this sampling. Henry Miller, an American author, wrote, Hope is a bad thing. It means that you are not what you want to be. It means that part of you is dead, if not all of you. It means that you entertain illusions. Lord Byron, the British poet, said, But what is hope? Nothing but the paint on the face of existence. The least touch of truth rubs it off. And then we see what a hallowed-cheeked harlot we have got hold of. George Bernard Shaw, the Irish writer, wrote, He was never hoped, can never despair. And finally, lest I throw up, Robert Green Ingersoll, American politician and orator, wrote, Hope is the only universal liar who never loses his reputation for veracity or truthfulness or lack thereof. Well, I read those quotations because I found so many of them, and I was, quite frankly, a a bit shocked at just how cynical people are about hope and how even antagonistic people are about hope. But I also wanted to read those quotations and then say to you, my initial response is sympathetic. My initial response to those kind of statements and that kind of sentiment is one of sympathy if it weren't for one thing. I think we should share their sentiments if it were not for one thing, if it were not for one reality, and we can summarize that reality in one single word. Hope is foolishness. Hope is silly. Hope is empty. Hope is stupid. If it were not for the one great reality, and that one great reality is justification. It is because of justification that I have to disagree with every single one of those writers and the many more who say similar things. Justification is is that act of God whereby He declares sinners righteous even though they're not based upon the historic work of His Son, based upon Christ living a righteous life, based upon Christ dying a substitutionary death, satisfying the righteous requirements of God. The Bible tells us over and over again, if you believe in Him, if you trust in Him and Him alone, you will be declared righteous. You will be declared perfect. You will be justified even though you're not righteous. It's because of that historic act on our behalf, securing our justification, not fantasy, that we have hope, that we have sureness, that we have confidence in a relationship before God because that's what hope ultimately is. We're talking about hope in this mini-series that we're doing, for lack of a better term, in Romans 5, 1 to 11. It's about hope. The word hope is not used in every verse, but these 11 verses have to do with one major theme, and that theme is hope, and that hope, again, is not founded upon nothing. 
That hope is not founded upon optimism. That hope is not founded upon hope. That hope is founded upon what we see in Romans 1 to 4, and that is justification. That is trusting in Christ and what He has done, and you will be declared righteous, and then hope is real. Hope is not fictitious. Hope is not wishful thinking. And what we've begun to do, and we started last week, we'll continue on today, is looking at hope from different angles, because that's what Romans 5, 1 to 11 does. You look at hope from all of these different angles, and you see that it's multidimensional. You see that it's rich. You find reason after reason after reason to have hope, and ultimately then, therefore, to glorify Christ, because our hope is built upon, it's founded upon justification, which is based upon His work. I would like to highlight for you, and we began this last time, seven dimensions of hope. You could number it a bit differently. I think there's more than seven, actually. I put a couple of them together. But let's let's look at seven different dimensions of hope that are ours if we are justified, if we're trusting in Christ and His righteousness for our own righteousness that we need to be united and to be reconciled to God who is righteous. Last time we looked at the first two. I'll just briefly review in case you're just joining us. The first dimension of hope that the justified have, and that's you and that's me if we're Christians. The first one is the hope of peace with God. The hope of peace with God. And again, hope in biblical terms is talking about sureness because of the sureness of Christ. But look with me in verse 1 where we see this first dimension. It's rather profound. Therefore... Having been justified by faith. That's Romans 1 to 4. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't get more amazing than that. Peace with God. Remember, we were, in effect, at war with God. We learned about that in the first three chapters. And then we realized now we have peace with God. Well, how has this peace happened? Well, this peace has happened based upon the work of Christ. And in chapter 3, we learned about atonement, where the Son satisfies the righteous requirements of the Father. My translation says propitiation, the satisfaction, the atonement, where God poured out His wrath on His Son so that we could have justification secured for us if we believe in Him. That is what hope is built upon. Again, not hope in hope, but hope in Christ because we have faith in Him and that brings justification and that gives us hope. That gives us sureness before God. Well, number two, by way of review, a second dimension of hope for the justified is the hope of standing in grace. The hope of standing in grace. Verse 2 says, through whom, no doubt it's referring to Christ still, also, so there's even more than peace, also we, the justified, have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And again, I, I don't know how it could get any better, but we're just seeing another dimension of the great hope that is ours in Christ if we're justified. Absolutely amazing. Now we have this this hope where we stand in the presence of God. Whereas before, what would we need to do? We would need to cower in the presence of God. We would need to, to run and plead and beg for mercy. A merciful, quick, swift death. Because we deserved it. And now the image is so good and strong. Based upon the merits of Christ, not ours. 
we stand in His presence. We've been ushered into His throne room as the image, and we've been ushered into His throne room, and we've gone there with Christ by invitation. It is indeed who you know. And in this case, we know Christ. Our introduction. Christ introduces us. Please notice that this is when you look at verse two. It, it, it emphasizes sureness. It emphasizes that which is lasting, that which is abiding. Even the grammar does. Now, one thing I'd like to add that I didn't mention last time regarding verse two, and it has to do with that little statement at the end of the verse where it says. This grace in which we stand. I think it's noteworthy because it's, it's unique. Typically when we hear about God's grace, or we hear about grace, we're, we're hearing about how God gives us what we don't deserve. And that certainly is true here, and we've been learning that in Romans. But here it's used rather uniquely, and I think it's worthy of us of, of noticing. We're standing in grace. Here it's not we've been saved by grace, even though that's true here, but we're standing in grace. That is to say, say we're in a sphere of grace. We are, we are in a state of grace. We are standing in a state of grace. Just another dimension of this amazing hope that we have. But perhaps your ears perked up when I used that particular phrase. We're standing, and I said, in a state of grace. You watch enough movies, you watch enough television, you attend enough religious services, you'll hear phrases like state of grace. You're hearing that from different religions. And a religion might say, if you die in a state of grace, you'll go to heaven. It's talking to Christians. If you as a Christian die in a state of grace, as if you may not, if you die in a state of grace, you'll go to heaven. But if you as a Christian don't die in a state of grace, you'll go to purgatory. I laugh not because it's funny, but because it should be so obvious that that is absolute, utter, utter nonsense. Reread the verse. It's talking about standing in a state of grace into this grace in which we stand. And how is it that we stand in a state of grace based upon our performance, based upon what we do or do not do? Absolutely not. Everything in the passage is about what Christ has done for us. We've been justified by faith, not by our actions. It's based upon His action. And based upon His action, Check out what it's saying. It's saying we stand in a state of grace. As if to say, if you're justified, you will always be standing in a state of grace. It's impossible for you ever, ever, ever to fall from a state of grace because it's based upon Christ that you stand. Again, there is hope. There is not hope in pseudo-Christianity, but there is hope in Christianity. There is hope in Christ there is hope in justification. There is hope in the finished work of Christ. And it's absolutely amazing. Praise be to God that I, if I am a Christian and I've been justified by God's grace through faith in Christ, plus or minus nothing, praise be to God that I will, with an exclamation point, 
die in a state of grace because I stand in a state of grace because of Christ's work. This is absolutely amazing. Now let's move on to a third dimension of hope for the justified. Number three, the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. Verse 2 goes on to say, and you can look there with me at your Bible, that we read, and, and we exalt, or literally we boast. It's this idea of being, being, being joyous, but more, more basic than that. It's just the idea, it's, it's boasting. It can be translated that way. We boast, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now, when you read that, you, I, I'm drawn in immediately, and assuming I know nothing else, I'm drawn in and I think, that sounds exciting. We're, we're to boast in the glory of God. You know, and I want to say, isn't that great? Oh yes, it's wonderful. We're boasting in the glory of God. And my fear is that, that we're motivated and we're excited, but we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> so it's emotionalism. Okay, we're supposed to boast, and so let's boast in the glory of God. Boast, 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 boast. God, it's amazing. Your glory is amazing, amazing, amazing. What does that mean? And it's worth us stopping and saying, let's, let's find out what it does mean so we can be edified. So that when we're boasting in, in something and we're praising God for something, we actually know what we're talking about because then it's really going to be meaningful. And it's going to be genuine and it's going to have some depth and some substance which will then elevate our praise and our boasting all the more instead of just boasting because we're supposed to. There's a little bit of an interpretive challenge here because what does it mean to boast in the glory of God? And so I'd invite you to join me on a little journey. Let's look and see in Romans how the glory of God is used. Where something is justified, people we're supposed to be boasting in. Well, well, how is glory used in the book of Romans? And it's used in, in a few different ways at least. And I'm not going to make a decision on which one's intended here. I don't think we have to make a decision. Just as we're looking at the multiple dimensions of hope that come to us as justified people, I think there's multiple dimensions to the glory of God which should cause us to want to boast now that we've been justified. And so let's go ahead and begin looking. The first way the glory of God is used is back in Romans chapter 1. And it's used for His honor as God. So if you go back to Romans chapter 1, you'll see that, that, that God's honor is described as His glory and His as His glory. In Romans chapter 1, it's a negative thing for us because we were trying to take honor from Him. We were trying to take glory from Him, but nevertheless, we see that it's used for His honor. Look at verse 21 with me, if you would, where it says, For even though they knew God, God revealed Himself, they did not honor Him. We're going to see a synonym for that. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23 says, And exchanged the glory, there we have it, of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then it says God gave them over. God judges them as a result of that. But what I want you to see there is glory is used there. And it's also another word that is used as a synonym is honor. They exchange the glory of God. Uh, the, the, instead of us seeing God as He's revealed Himself and we're saying, Yes, you're God. We worship you as you've revealed yourself. Instead, what we do, that would be honoring to God. That would be glorifying to God. Instead, what we do is we say, No, 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 no. Would we, re, we, we redefine God and we have Him on our terms and we make Him according to our own image and our own likeness. 
in effect, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're robbing God of glory as unbelievers. We're robbing God of honor. And really what we're doing is we're playing God. You say, well, where are you going with all that? Well, keep this Romans 1 idea in mind of honor and glory, having God be God, really. And to know now that we have hope because we now boast in the glory of God. We now boast in the honor of God. Well, there's hope in that because now, get this, I do what I was made to do. I do what I was designed to do. Things are, things are made right now. It used to be because of my sin and rebellion, I wanted to be God, which is absolutely perverted. And I wanted to, to redefine God myself, which in effect, again, puts me above God. I want to be God. I want honor. I want glory. And now, because of the work of Christ, because of His justifying work, and now that I've been reconciled to God, you know what? Now I'm doing what's logical and makes sense, and I'm not trying to play God anymore. And now I'm boasting in the honor of God. I'm boasting in the glory of God. Let God be God and every man be found a liar. God is God and everyone should see Him as God. We should worship Him as God. And we should accept His revelation of Himself. This is new. And by the fact that now I'm doing what's right and what's logical, what's appropriate, there's hope. God has done something amazing here. The right thing is happening now, and it's based upon the justifying work of Christ. Well, let's look at glory from another angle, and it's related to this angle. And that is where it's used of the righteousness of God. Still trying to understand Romans 5 a bit better. Let's go to Romans 3.23. We're boasting in the glory of God, and that's supposed to give us hope in the context of chapter 5. But what does the glory of God mean? Well, it's His honor, and now we're boasting in, in Him being God, and that's what's right. That's what we were made to do, so that gives us hope. Now we're on the right track. We're doing what we were designed and made to be doing. But now we also see that the glory of God is used again in a little bit different way in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned, we know the verse well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you read the verses before and you read the verses after, Without question, he's talking about the righteousness of God. So, so let's use that as a synonym and, and see if we can appreciate Romans 5 a bit better. God has righteous standards. He's a righteous God. We violate His standards because we're unrighteous and we're rebels. And what ends up happening, if you are a thinking person and you learn about the righteousness of God and you acknowledge and know that you are not righteous then you find yourself feeling maybe a little bit like Martin Luther did. Before he was converted, he said he hated God. And he hated God specifically because God was righteous. And he knew that he wasn't. The last thing in the world you want to hear about, the last thing in the world you want to talk about, not to mention boast in, is the righteousness of God because you don't measure up to the righteousness of God. It is your nemesis. It is your enemy. You hate God for His righteousness. And then, 
We've been learning about this righteousness of God because God is not only righteous, He's also loving and gracious. And so, to deal with our unrighteousness problem, He sends His Son to live a righteous life for us, to die a righteous death for us, satisfying God's righteous requirements, so that if we believe in Him, we trust in Him, we'll be declared righteous. And now what? Now, all of a sudden, we say, I love God. I love God even though I know He's righteous. I love God even though I know He's righteous and I know I'm not. On what basis? The justifying work of Christ on the cross. And now, to be quite honest, there's nothing I'd rather talk about than the righteousness of God. I want to talk about it all the time. I want to boast in the righteousness of God. I, I, it's what I do every Sunday. It's what I, what I do every day of my life, given any opportunity. It's what you do as a Christian when you talk to people about the gospel. You're boasting in the righteousness of God. Unless you're, you're not really giving people the gospel, really that's what you're doing. If it's true to the biblical gospel, substitutionary atonement of Christ, justification, that's what we do. It's magnificent. And you say, how does that give us hope? What gives us hope? Because I used to hate the righteousness of God, even if I wouldn't have said it that way, and even though if I may have been a religious person, the facts be known, I, I despise the righteousness of God. And now I love the righteousness of God because of justification, and so there's hope now. There's genuine sureness. I've moved from a child of darkness to a child of light, and God gets all the credit for it. Okay, let's look at glory now from one more perspective. Perhaps the first perspective you thought I was going to mention, and it certainly is true, but I've saved it for last. If you turn to Romans 8, you see the glory of God is used not just for His honor, not just for His righteousness, but the glory of God is used for something describing what we will share with Him. We could still say it's describing His honor and His righteousness. But there's a sense in which you, if you are justified, will share His glory with Him. Not in an idolatrous sense, but the Bible talks about when we see Christ, we'll be made like Him. And that's to the degree that we can be without becoming God, because that's impossible. But we'll no longer have any unrighteousness in us, practically speaking. We'll be with Him. We'll be made like Him in every sense that's possible and necessary. And we talk about glorification in these terms. It's, it's talking about future exaltation. Look at Romans 8, verse 17, where it says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. We, we, see, we, we share with Him in a unique sense of His righteousness. For I consider that the suffering of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about that future union with Christ where we are co-heirs with Him and we share with Him in His honor in this unique and special way as co-heirs. And it's something still yet to come in the future. And you can certainly absolutely know that that's something that makes us excited. Yeah! I can't wait for that day. You know what? I boast in that. I boast in the reality that someday I will see Christ and I'll be made like Him. I'll be glorified. This is amazing and it's tied to the only way it could ever happen is based upon Christ's justifying work. And really, if we were to take the time to look at more of the details in Romans 8, that's what it talks about. 
It always goes back to the cross. And so in light of the cross, in light of justification, what do we do now? We say, oh, let's boast, let's brag, let's talk, let, let, let's, let's enjoy telling others and talking amongst each other about the fact that when we see Christ, we'll be made like Him. Glorified. This is so tied to the cross and the historic work of Christ that if you were to read on in Romans 8, 29, and 30, it will say glorified, past tense. And we know based upon the verses we just read in Romans 8, it hasn't happened yet. See, that's why you have to keep going back to that which is central to everything, and that is justification. How can I have hope today? Uh, how can I have hope that, that, uh, that when I see Christ, I'll be made like Him? Well, I have hope because the Bible says that will happen. And not only that, I have hope in light of Romans 8 where it says glorified, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's as good as done. But, but is that just wishful thinking? Is that really what builds hope? Uh, if it's just wishful thinking, then, then I'm not boasting in it. I'm just kind of hoping for it in a wishful sense. No. Romans 1, 2, especially three and four, tie that hope of future glorification to the historic life and death of Christ as well as His resurrection. And so, yes, we boast in it. We say, isn't it great? Based upon what Christ has done, I know that I don't have to deal with this body forever when we're struggling and we're suffering and going through all the different kinds of things we'll go through, we're going to talk about that. You know what? My eyes ultimately are fixed. You could say on heaven, but you know what causes my eyes to be fixed on heaven? It's that. Because the only way I can be sure that I will be glorified is what Christ has done for me again. It always comes back to the cross. It has to. It's absolutely amazing. And if I can just say it as if it's not already obvious, it's practical. The practical stuff of life is tied to the historic work of Christ. It has to come back to the cross. And I hope we're seeing that in the connection between Romans 4, or excuse me, Romans 5, and the verses that come before. Future glorification is guaranteed. pretty interesting in light of Romans 1 you know I stand before you who someone who was a uh, a glory robber I stand before you who is one who, who by nature and by action I'm a glory grubber I want to take that which is God's and have it for my own ultimately so I can act like I'm God in Romans 1, 2, and 3, especially Romans 1. And while I deserve wrath, God works in such an amazing way so as to have His Son earn righteousness for me to the point where now I'm still boasting about glory. But now I'm boasting about His glory. Let God be God. And isn't God amazing? He's actually going to usher us into His presence and make us like His Son. And All this stuff is as good as done because of the cross. It's absolutely amazing. Number four. 
a fourth dimension of hope that we have as justified people if we are justified by faith in Christ is the hope of good coming from bad. The hope of good coming from bad. Now that sounds kind of weird as far as I'm concerned. The hope of good coming from bad. I think we're just going to do the four points today. Let's make sure. Uh, that's it. That's all we're going to get to. Bummer. All right. <laughs> just look at two words, if you would, about good coming from bad based upon what Christ has done. If you just look at two words in verse 3, my translation says, Our tribulations. You just find those two words. The NIV and the ESV both say, our sufferings. Now, I would just like to point out the obvious. And the obvious is, you will have tribulations. The obvious is, you will have suffering. And I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I think 99% of you, perhaps more than that, would say, I know that. But the more people I talk to, the more professing Christians I talk to, they don't want to even acknowledge this. I met, I met someone who was visiting here for our, our conference on suffering, and, and the person was very thankful, and thank you for putting this on. And they said, this is very eye-opening to me because as a point in my life, in my Christian life, I don't use the word suffering, which I thought was kind of interesting. Interesting is code for weird. <laughs> uh, interesting is just a catch, catch-all word, you know, safe word. Somebody says something that's bad, you say, well, that's interesting. You're just warming up the knife before you... Anyway, so I don't use the word... And basically went on to say, I don't use the word suffering in essence saying because if I say suffering, it might happen. Sort of a reverse name it and claim it, you know, speak things into being. And I just thought that was, that's, that's weird. I just said, you know, I didn't say that. I thought that, and I, I said, well, you know what? I think you're in the right place, which is another safe thing to say to people, by the way. But that wasn't weird enough. Within the same week, I think, I was talking to someone else, another professing Christian, and they basically said the same thing. Total different religious kind of background. I said, you know what? I can't believe you guys had a, a conference on suffering, and you, there's a book on suffering, and... You know what? That's, that's one of those kind of things I, I, just, I just kind of try to steer clear of. And, you know, it's like, it's denial is what we would say in psychological terms. He's living in denial. So I bring it to your attention and say, please focus on the two words because you can't get around it. Your life is a living testimony that suffering is real. Right? Not to mention what the Bible says. Put some of these promises in your biblical promise book and claim them. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. There's your life verse. <laughs> John 15, 20, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Paul chimes in in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We add to that Romans 8, which, which is one of those texts that ends up putting its arms around the whole planet and the whole created order, saying, look, everyone suffers because of sin. We live in a broken world, and you live a broken life. Let's remember that. Because 
If you remember that, you can then be ready to hear about the great promise that's tied to justification that gives you hope that if you are justified, God promises to use those tribulations in your life to lead to hope. But if we're back here in denial, la, 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 everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, I don't believe in sickness, don't believe in death, you know, Christian science, you'll never find hope. You're living in fantasy, la, la, land. So let's not be functional Christian scientists. Let's just say, there it is. Okay. Trials are real. But now let's look from, for, for, for how good can come. Look at verse 3. And not only this. Okay, so verses 1 and 2 have been amazing. And we've been excited. He's going to tell us something else exciting, even though we might not like to hear it because we're still somewhat in denial. And not only this. He says in verse 3, but we also exalt. Literally, we also boast in our tribulations. Things that make you go, hmm, you know. If I could just say, that's weird. You know, you're like, what? That doesn't seem near as good as the stuff in the first two verses. <laughs> Boasting in tribulations, you know. But, but maybe for now, to at least say, if someone can guarantee me that, they can give me guaranteed hope from tribulations, whoever it is that can do that is pretty amazing. That's right. We're to see Christ as amazing in this whole thing. Then he gives the rationale. And I want to use the word rationale because he's not saying, okay, stop this form of denial and I'm going to move you to another form of denial. Right? Okay, agree that there is suffering. Repent of the denial. And now come over here in some other kind of denial. Oh, suffering is good. Thank you, Jesus. You know? That seems weird. I mean, if, there, if there's no rationale behind it, you know what? Just, just be happy all the time. He gives rationale behind it. This is logical. Look at the rationale. Exalt in our tribulations in verse 3, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance proven character and proven character hope. I circled tribulation. Here's the logical connection. Tribulation, then perseverance, then proven character, and then hope. And he wants us to see the logical connection between tribulation, perseverance, proven character, and hope. But really the ultimate, uh, the logical connection is between tribulation and hope. But you have to see what's in the middle to see why it makes sense. Let's reread the verse and I'll give you some, maybe some interpretive commentary. Knowing the tribulation, the word that can be used a lot of different ways... Let's just use it generically. That seems to be the idea that Paul is using it in. Tribulation, oh, everything from you having a hard time in life because you live in a fallen world to physical sickness to persecution as a believer in Christ. It's just bad things happening. Okay, there we have it. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. You could translate that word endurance or steadfastness. He's talking about Christians. Tribulation leads to perseverance. Uh, athletics is not a bad idea here. You know, if you're, you get on the treadmill first time in a year and you start running, that's tribulation, right? <laughs> but if you are running, what you're doing is you're building perseverance. 
you're building steadfastness where you can actually handle more and there's actually going to be some, some, some success that comes as a result. That's not a bad image of what he's describing here. Tribulation, that's the bad stuff. But you know what? That brings about perseverance. That'll toughen you up if you're a believer. Then you move on to the next component, perseverance, and then proven character. Here's some synonyms for proven character that might be helpful. Testedness. Triedness. The Greek word is even sometimes translated proof. That one helped me. Proof. And proven character, hope. You might want to jot down Romans 15.4. Similarly, it says, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So what's he saying? It's not hard. It's not hard to figure out. Tribulation, that's the bad stuff that happens because you are a sinner and you live with other sinners and you live in a sinful world even if you are justified. Persecution because of Christ, whatever it may be. But you know what? If you're a justified person, that doesn't break you. It leads to perseverance. Testedness. And then it leads to provenness. Genuineness is made evident, which leads to hope. It's a pretty good chain. What I did is I just wrote down the big problems in my life that I've faced over the years. Some of the things that have hurt the most. You can even think of some of them. Since you've been a Christian, what kind of things hurt? What are the pains? What are the tribulations? I wrote down everything from mentors doing the wrong thing to physical suffering to having loved ones die people slander unbelievers not talk to you anymore Christians slander church members doing the wrong thing I mean you just you can make a list yourself and here's where the hope comes in I'm still here. It's evidence of the grace of God ultimately tied to Christ's justifying work that I can stand up here and talk. That I haven't cashed the whole thing and say, forget it. I quit, you know. And just go and do all those same things. How about even my own sin that I struggle with? That it hasn't completely debilitated and disqualified me from everything. How about that? Pressure in life, tribulation, builds perseverance, builds provenness. And I can say, I've got more hope in my life now than I had when I was first a Christian. Progressive hope. And if you're justified, you could say the same thing. Oh, God, thank you. Now, here's what I want to do. I don't know about you. Thank you for all of those tribulations you, you caused in my life in the past. Right? Because, oh, I've really seen a lot of perseverance. Praise be to Jesus, you know. I'm almost Baptist. (laughs) I'm so glad for the perseverance. And you know, the proven character. I'm not the person I used to be, God. You have really used those tribulations in the past in my life. But you know and I know, until we see Christ and we're glorified, He's going to keep using them. I'm thankful I don't know what they are. This doesn't mean that every professing Christian faces tribulation that leads to perseverance, that leads to provenness, that leads to hope. 
Paul's not dealing with it in this particular place, but there is such a thing as a false profession of faith. Jesus himself even talks about them like in Matthew 13. But here, this is designed to give us hope. The bad things that happen in our life are used by God to make us stronger. But I can't help myself. I have to keep doing this, keep reminding you. Ultimately, even our being stronger goes back to Romans 3 and 4. Justification. Justification based upon His righteousness. We have hope because of that, but this hope shows itself now in our Christian lives in a lot of different ways. Even this guarantee for good coming out of bad. Maybe one more verse just to write down in your margin or somewhere. I thought it was rather encouraging in Romans where it says, in Romans 15.5, Now may the God who gives perseverance. (laughs) It's helpful. You know, even the perseverance that comes, the justification is a gift, but guess what? Perseverance is a gift. We could take time to go to Philippians 1 and see the suffering is a gift. It's all a gift. God gets the credit for all of this. He gets the credit for absolutely all of it. Well, I began by reading those quotations from people like Lord Byron. And I'll end by saying, Lord Byron and these hope disparagers, they needed someone to tell them about justification. The key to hope that is not foolish and stupid is justification because otherwise, quite frankly, hope is foolish and stupid. The cross is what makes it everything. And so, let's make it our goal in life. If we are justified, to tell others who are not justified where they can find real hope Let's make it one of our goals in life to not affirm hope and hope, which is stupid. But to give people hope that is real, logical, based upon historic actions, the historic actions of Christ. If you are justified, you have hope. The people you know who are not justified have no hope. So let's rejoice and say we have hope because of Christ. And let's be careful not to put all of those people down who belittle hope and make fun of it and have a bad attitude about it because quite frankly, if we've learned anything from Romans, that is us apart from God's grace giving us the answer, the answer being justification in Christ. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King. He is our all and all. Lord, may we have tender hearts, not hard hearts, not prideful hearts because somehow we know something that others don't. But Lord, may we acknowledge that we are merely beggars. 
as has been said, we are beggars who have found food. Lord, may we be beggars who have found food who are quick to tell other beggars where they can find food. Lord, thank you for the hope that is sure. Help you, thank you for the hope that is sure because of Christ. And help us to be quick to speak of justification and therefore to speak of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.